This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is learning from and remembering the past. In the first half, David J. Whitaker shares his address, Pioneering Journeys, Then and Now. Then in the second half, Matthew O. Richardson speaks on Stand Up Straight, Smile, and Remember Who You Are. If your travel experiences are anything like mine, it is very hard to compare or even relate our modern journeys with those of the early Mormon pioneers. It is true that I covered the same distance and even the same general route, but at 550 miles per hour, it was a long way from the dozen or so miles traveled in a whole day in a jolting, dusty, covered wagon, if in fact our pioneers weren't walking. But my journey of some total 17 hours, most of which was at 13 miles above the Earth's surface, cannot really be compared to those of our pioneer ancestors, whose trek to the Salt Lake Valley from England took almost six months. Then, too, so few of the Church today have ancestors who crossed the plains before 1869, when the Transcontinental Railroad was completed and the journey made much easier. And with the membership of the Church increasingly non-American, such an identification becomes even more problematical. Members in Hungary or Tahiti probably have little direct connection with handcarts or buffalo chips. Was it the physical distances covered and endurance of the accompanied hardships that define a pioneering experience? If so, how are we of the modern Church to relate more personally to the pioneer sesquicentennial? Does making our own soap and candles make us pioneers? What could be the enduring lessons for all of us? Even before the first wagons pulled out of Nauvoo in February 1846, over 4,000 English converts had gathered to western Illinois. Traveling from Liverpool to New Orleans and then up the Mississippi River, they had responded to the message of Mormon missionaries, which required baptism and then confirmation, as well as a physical movement of themselves and their loved ones to the American Zion. Gathering out of the world was signified by their baptism and acceptance of membership in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And gathering to be where the Lord's prophet and his people were was as much a part of the conversion process as was, of course, their water baptism. Both worked together to require new members to create a community of the faithful who, in time, would establish a Latter-day Zion. Wherever the Mormons gathered, they built communities wherein saints could be made. This is clearly what Joseph Smith had in mind when he taught his early followers that, quote, we ought to have the building up of Zion as our greatest object, end quote. Following the deaths of Joseph and Hiram Smith in June of 1844, increased pressure was placed on Church leaders to abandon Nauvoo. Escalating violence led to the decision during the winter of 1845-46 to move west. In fact, Brigham Young had ordered the establishment of 25 companies of 100 wagons each, thus planning one massive 2,500-wagon caravan for the spring of 1846. While Mormon leaders thus anticipated a springtime departure, the reality was different. The first wagons left Nauvoo on the 4th of February of 1846, beginning the 260-mile trek across Iowa to their 
winter quarters. The move across Iowa involved a number of groupings. The first, from March to June, Brigham Young led about 3,000 people across Iowa. Two, in the spring, about 10,000 members left Nauvoo for the same trek. And three, in the fall, about 700 of the poorest members of the church were literally forced out of Nauvoo. About 16,000 members would make the Iowa crossing between 1846 and 1853. It was in the crossing of Iowa that early members really became pioneers. Though short the distance was, it was hard going, very challenging, and clearly tragic for many families. William Clayton's pioneering anthem, Come, Come Ye Saints, is a powerful reminder, I think, of this part of our pioneering history, both the tragedy and the triumph. Latter-day Saints would, once uh, once having crossed Iowa, establish about a hundred communities in the Missouri River Valley, mostly on the eastern side of the river across from present-day Omaha, Nebraska. Winter Quarters itself was laid out on the west side of the river, and it was modeled after the plat of the city of Zion that Joseph Smith had sent to the Saints in Jackson County, Missouri, earlier in 1833. On the eastern side of the river, Canesville would come to serve as the quasi-headquarters and clearly the outfitting point of the Mormon migration west from 1847 to 1852, especially after Winter Quarters itself was abandoned in 1848. It was in this area that the Mormon battalion was enlisted in 1846. It was in the Canesville Tabernacle that Brigham Young was sustained as the second president of the church in 1847. During this period, Mormon Indian policy was more clearly and fully implemented. The Mormon newspaper, The Frontier Guardian, was published there by Apostle Orson Hyde. And after the Mormons left, the community was renamed Council Bluffs. The full story of this incredible pioneering experience has really yet to be told. In April of the next year, 1847, the Pioneer Company, whose arrival in the Salt Lake Valley we are celebrating this month, left winter quarters for the Great Basin. Led personally by Brigham Young and organized according to the principles spelled out in the 136th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, its journey has been well documented by such records as those kept by Thomas Bullock, William Clayton, and Orson Pratt. But it was not a typical Mormon pioneer company. It was 98% male, where almost all subsequent companies were about 51% male. It was, by later standards, an older grouping, where the first company's average age was 32. Even the other companies that came in 1847 aged about 21 years young. But the original company was just that, a pioneering company whose observations, decisions, and subsequent leadership would set the pattern for those who followed. A great many did. There were about 224 overland companies of Mormon immigrants from 1847 to 1868, containing a total of about 62,000 people. When this number is considered with the 226 companies involved in the ocean crossings during the same period, we clearly had a very large number of pioneering journeys. We ought not to just concentrate on the first or only the original Uh, pioneer crossings. One woman we know said that she would rather cross the Great Plains ten times than cross the North Atlantic Ocean once. A large number of contemporary and reminiscence accounts of Mormon pioneering treks have survived. 
We are, of course, a record-keeping people. Much more time and literature has, of course, been devoted to the physical trek itself. My point today is that the physical journey was only the outward and thus the more easily measured manifestation of the pioneering experience. But I would suggest it was a symbol with great meaning and relevance of something deeper. And it really is to that part of the pioneering journey I think we can, as modern Latter-day Saints, relate to more easily. I would then suggest the following sesquicentennial perspectives. While we tend to think of Brigham Young as the Mormon Moses, it is even more appropriate to see Joseph Smith as the Moses of Latter-day Israel. It is true in his role as lawgiver and as revealer of Scripture. He was also a leader of people and a community builder. It is increasingly recognized just how pervasive the world of the Old Testament was in early Mormonism. The Book of Mormon itself and the people it spoke of came directly out of this world, and many of its themes are more clearly understood within the context of the Old Testament. Consider such examples as the early Mormon emphasis on such things as prophets, patriarchs, temples and tabernacles, and plural marriage, to only mention the most obvious. The appearance in the Kirtland Temple in 1836 of key prophets of ancient Israel who delivered priesthood keys to Joseph and his associates also serves to remind us of the intimate relationships Mormons have with the ancient Israelites. One of the key themes, of course, in the Book of Mormon is that of Exodus, the departure of righteous groups into the wilderness under divine commandment and guidance. Thus the departure of Lehi and his family from Jerusalem and Nephi's own departure from his rebellious brothers after Lehi died were conscious imitations of Israel's earlier flight into the wilderness where they could be free from persecution to establish a righteous society. Of course, the journey into the wilderness was a conscious rejection of the world they left behind, but it was also a journey during which they could develop into more righteous followers of God. While the followers of Laman and Lemuel could never believe that Jerusalem was a wicked place, Nephi's followers rejoiced in their own journeyings in the wilderness. Jacob wrote that the Lord had led the people out of the land of Jerusalem, quote, that I might raise up unto me a righteous branch, end quote and of his people therefore being, quote, a lonesome and a solemn people, wanderers. Alma reminded his people that, quote, because of our being wanderers in a strange land, therefore we are thus highly favored, end quote. Wandering and being blessed thus went together. Biblical scholars have suggested that the word habri, which we usually translate as Hebrew, literally means wanderer or outsiders. Thus Abraham in the text as the father of the faithful, was seen as a wanderer. And Paul, to first-century Christians, in his epistle particularly to the Hebrews, spoke that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, seeking a better country or a heavenly city. Of course, Enoch was the ultimate model of the wanderer who gathered a righteous people together and eventually obtained this heavenly city. Joseph Smith, whose code name in the early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants was, in fact, Enoch, consciously sought the same for his own people. The early Mormon quest to establish a city of Zion was directly related to this very precise and pervasive scriptural heritage. An early revelation given in March of 1831, the Enoch story was presented anew to our Church. Quote, and even so I have sent mine everlasting covenant into the world to be a light to the world, to be a standard for my people, and for the Gentiles to seek it, 
and to be a messenger before my face to prepare the way before me. Wherefore, come ye unto it, and with him that cometh I will reason as with men in days of old, and I will show unto you my strong reasoning. Wherefore, hearken ye together, and let me show unto you even my wisdom, the wisdom of him whom ye say is the God of Enoch and his brethren, who were separated from the earth and received unto myself, a city reserved until the day of righteousness shall come, a day which was sought for by all holy men. And they found it not because of wickedness and abominations, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, but obtained a promise that they should find it and see it in their flesh." End quote. Much of the early Latter-day Saint experience was focused on establishing a Latter-day Zion. The first camp of Israel, which was also called Zion's camp, was an organized attempt of early leaders to recover church property in their appointed Zion in Jackson County, Missouri, from which early members had been forcefully expelled. The some 205 individuals were organized in Kirtland, Ohio, after the organization of ancient Israel into companies of tens, fifties, and one hundreds by Joseph Smith. He led the march personally and sought to instruct those members about their priesthood duties. Brigham Young, appointed as a captain of ten on this 1834 trek, recalled later in his life that it was then he first learned how to lead Israel. And I quote, I have traveled with Joseph a thousand miles. He has led the camp of Israel. I have watched him and observed everything he said or did. For the town of Kirtland, I would not give the knowledge I got from Joseph on this journey. And then you may take the state of Ohio and the United States, and I would not give that knowledge for them. It has done me good. And this was the starting point of my knowing how to lead Israel." End quote. He also recalled that this was the first time the Church had ever traveled in the capacity of a large company, and it was, he said, my first experience in that mode of traveling. While many returned to Kirtland, Ohio, with negative perceptions of the march, Brigham Young saw the prophetic nature of that experience. He surely saw the continued meaning of such an organization when the Church was again organized into companies of tens, fifties, and one hundreds in 1838 in far west Missouri. There ought to have been little question that when Brigham Young turned to the question of organizing the Mormon exodus from winter quarters in 1847, that the same organization for their journeyings in the wilderness would be given to the saints. And I quote from section, the first four verses of section 136, The word and the will of the Lord concerning the camp of Israel in their journeyings to the West. Let all the people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those who journey with them be organized into companies with a covenant and a promise to keep all the commandments and statutes of the Lord our God. Let the companies be organized with captains of hundreds, captains of fifties, and captains of tens, with a president and his two counselors at their head and under the direction of the twelve apostles. And this shall be our covenant, that we will walk in all the ordinances of the Lord." End quote. While it is true that the Mormons were forced to move uh, west, they understood that their hygiera, or pilgrimage, was involved more. Brigham Young recalled in 1856, quote, I said upon natural principle that this people had to go into a country that the Gentiles do not desire, that this people can only gain strength upon the principles of fleeing to a country where the wicked will not live. 
End quote. As a people called to wander, much in the early Latter-day Saints' self-understanding saw to the heart of their mortal experience. As in ancient Israel, the Mormon exodus would create a community of people with shared experiences and memories. The consistent Mormon practice of naming their settlements, both on the trail and later in Utah, after Old Testament place names is just another index to this worldview. In Mormon thought, then and now, the original exodus was that of Adam and Eve, divinely sanctioned and required because of their choices to wander away from their Eden. Becoming pilgrims had divine purposes, of course, but it always reminded them that this lone and dreary world was not their home. Here they were strangers until they were worthy and prepared to return to their true home. For them, the gospel of Jesus Christ was the way back to the world and the relationships they had lost. But here they could be tested, here they could seek through their personal experience for the true and the beautiful in contrast to the false and the ugly. Their external exodus was also paralleled by their need for an internal pilgrimage. Following their partaking of the forbidden fruit, the first question God asked Adam was, Where art thou? According to Genesis 3, verse 9. Clearly more than a question of geography, the question was more directed to travelers, as revealed in the Joseph Smith translation of the same verse in Moses 4, verse 15. Where goest thou? The need to anchor this wandering in holy places became a consistent theme in scriptural history. The temple was to be the place for learning of our mortal pilgrimage and to make the covenants that gave us the knowledge and the relationships needed to travel successfully through the wilderness of this fallen world. To travel to the temple then and now was to make a personal pilgrimage. To journey was, in fact, to remember. Jorge Borges, the great 20th century writer, tells the story of a young man he knew in his youth who had suffered a head injury as a result of a fall from a horse. But his injury was unique. Instead of amnesia or a loss of memory, this individual found that he could not forget anything. As students preparing for exams, you no doubt wish for such a blessing. But Borges suggests the tragic consequences of this inability to forget. Imagine the experience of seeing a leaf on a tree and being able to remember every other leaf you had ever seen. Imagine then comparing the veins of each leaf with the marbling on the leather binding of a book you had seen earlier in your life and being able to recall how similar this was to the marbling of a countertop at the drugstore at which you used to get your ice cream sodas. Then imagine seeing the same structuring in the bark of trees you had laid under as a child or in the countless cloud formations you had observed through your life. Then imagine continuing this mode of remembering into hundreds, literally thousands, of objects and topics. It would go on without end because you have perfect memory of everything you have ever seen. Of course, such an injury would be truly tragic in large measure because such extensive memory treats everything equally. His friend's memory, Borges says, was like a garbage disposal because all events and experiences were given the same value. Hence, there was no basis for choosing or evaluating which were the more important ones. In such a situation, we would drown in the details because to think is to forget a difference and memory must be selective. From this perspective, certainly, forgetfulness is a blessing. 
It surely helps us keep, keep us sane, and viewed within Mormon theology, it allows us to reveal where our hearts are by what we choose to think about. Where one's treasure is, there is one's heart, we are reminded. All knowledge is not of the same value, and if we do not wish to fill our minds with trivia, we must make careful decisions about what we remember. But to forget the really important things can be just as dangerous. So what are we to do? In our religion, both covenant-making ordinances and the keeping and studying of sacred records are the major means used, according to Alma's counsel to Helaman, to enlarge the memory of this people. The instituting of the sacrament by our Savior was done while celebrating the Feast of the Passover, the major ritual associated with the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Such sacred rituals were important for the group memory of Israel, regularly recalling the saving events of their origins. Jesus refocused and recentered the ritual on his own saving acts by using the bread and wine as symbols of his own infinite sacrifice. As acts of remembrance, the taking of the sacrament has remained in the LDS community one of the critical means of our own sacred memory. Think how often the word remembrance occurs just in the sacramental prayers. A major assumption was central, according to Helaman 5. They did remember his words, and therefore they went forth keeping his commandments. You remembered in order to do righteously. One remembered and then acted upon this knowledge. A critical function of the Holy Ghost, we are told in John 14, is to bring all important, I would add, things to our remembrance. The evil one wants us to forget the important things. He is in the scriptures identified with darkness and the forgetting of sacred things. The sacred acts, such as those constituting the temple endowment, function the same way. The temple itself, in LDS thought, offers sacred space where the individual is taught divine cosmology and endowed with power from on high. By helping us travelers get our bearings on the universe, these covenants are literally, quote, promises to give life to knowledge, in that they give individuals direction and promises that enable them to journey through this life righteously and therefore successfully. The experience itself is a strong reminder that we are pilgrims in mortality, exiled from heavenly parents for wise purposes. The trip to the temple itself is a type or a shadow of a pilgrimage to a holy place. And unless we understand this, we will not understand why members living in Nauvoo would work all day on the construction of a temple and then much of the night on their wagons for the westward journey. Where the one would prepare them for the physical journey, the other was critical for their spiritual journey. In September 1846, Brigham Young encouraged the saints during trying times, quote, Let the fire of the covenant which you made in the house of the Lord burn in your hearts. End quote. We must not forget that the concern for the construction of a temple anchored both ends of the Mormon westward movement. In Nauvoo, Brigham and others of the Quorum of the Twelve worked hard to encourage the Mormons to finish their temple. And one of the first things Brigham Young did upon entering the Salt Lake Valley was to select the site for another temple. Early members of the Church, like Sarah Rich, understood the deeper meaning of all this when she recalled her experiences in Iowa in 1846. Quote, 
But many were the blessings we had received in the house of the Lord, which caused us joy and comfort in the midst of all our sorrows, and enabled us to have faith in God, knowing that He would guide us and sustain us in the unknown journey that lay before us. For if it had not been for the faith and knowledge that was bestowed upon us in that temple by the influence and help of the Spirit of the Lord, our journey would have been one like taking a leap in the dark. To start out on such a journey in the winter, as it were, and in our state of poverty would seem like walking into the jaws of death. But we have faith in our Heavenly Father and put our trust in Him, feeling that we were His chosen people and had embraced His gospel and, instead of sorrow, felt to rejoice that the day of our deliverance had come." The temple, I would suggest, was the key to the Mormon westward movement. Its ordinances tied members to God and to each other through various sacred ordinances that accompanied those covenants. Such rituals were at the heart of the creation of the Mormon community. To see the Mormon exodus only in terms of wagons and western trails is to miss what really held us together as a people. Mormons could understand that the early Christians viewed their lives as pilgrims on earth, that the Greek word parochia, which literally means journeying, sojourning in a foreign land, came to designate the fundamental unit of the Christian community, the parish. The Mormon ward, of course, first called that in Nauvoo as a district for voting purposes, came to function as such a community in motion during the westward movement. We would not build ward houses until after settling in Utah. The great hope at winter quarters was that in their journeyings they would, quote, walk in all the ordinances of the Lord. Knowing in 1846 that the disorganization and decomposition, literally, of the Mormon community was the greatest challenge facing him, Brigham Young testified 20 years later of these events. Quote, what earthly power can gather a people as this and hold them together as a people as this people have been gathered? It was not Joseph, it was not Brigham, nor Heber, nor any of the rest of the twelve, nor any of the seventies or high priests that does this, but is the Lord God Almighty that holds this people together and no other power. Hosea Stout, after his own journey to the Salt Lake Valley in 1848, commented on the end of his particular journey. Quote, Thus ends this long and tedious journey from the land of our enemies, and we feel free and happy that we have escaped from their midst. But there are many desolate and sandy plain to cross, many a rugged sage bed to break through, many a hill and hollow to tug over, and many a mountain and canyon to pass, and many frosty nights to endure in midsummer. Stout, I think, seems to understand that his pioneering journeys were clearly not over just because he'd crossed the plains. He surely saw more than just physical travels ahead as he and his people sought to create a community of saints in the western wilderness. This is clearly a part of our heritage that all members throughout the world can identify with. The call to discipleship in our tradition consists of active verbs to ask, to seek, to knock, to listen, to serve, to love. Above all, the call to discipleship, it seems to me, is an invitation to join the pilgrimage as we, under divine and sacred covenants, seek a better world. A common theme in the teachings of the prophets of ancient Israel was to remind their people of the covenants they had made, that they stood at the crossroads in their covenant-making ceremonies and chose to follow the paths of righteousness. 
Even in their failures, Jeremiah, a contemporary of Lehi, noted, quote, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths, and ask where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. We do not, of course, have to make that journey alone or without inspired guides, as God has promised. He surely was a great guide to the early Mormon pioneers, as he continues to be with modern Israel. With Nephi, I testify that as we make our own journey through mortality, that we have each other in the covenant community, and that we have a God that Nephi reminded us of will also be your light in the wilderness. And I say those things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is learning from and remembering the past. We've just heard from David J. Whitaker. After the break, we'll return with Matthew O. Richardson for Stand Up Straight, Smile, and Remember Who You Are. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is learning from and remembering the past. Next is Matthew O. Richardson, BYU Advancement Vice President at the time of this address, titled Stand Up Straight, Smile, and Remember Who You Are. Over the past several decades, my wife has faithfully stood at our door to send our children off as they leave our home for school. Without exception, she would call to them, usually in her pajamas, and say, Stand up straight and smile and remember who you are. You're a Richardson, a child of God. And then, without taking a breath, she would then say our family motto, Reverence, Respect, responsibility, resourcefulness, and then with the excitement of a cheerleader, she would roll her arms and say the final word, resolve. She can do it much better than I can. Oh, but wait, she was not quite yet finished. She would cap all of this off with an enthusiastic, be a light. After hearing this charge nearly every day of their young lives, is it any wonder that this ritual has been forever ingrained in their memories? and quite possibly the memories of their friends and also our neighbors. With this image fresh in your mind, I would like to focus on the first part of my wife's simple but profound instruction to stand up straight and smile and remember who you are. BYU has impacted my ability to stand up straight, influenced why I smile, and greatly molded what I am today. I have been privileged to be part of this university as a student, a professor, and now an administrator for over three decades. Now, I know what you're thinking, and yes, three decades is a very, very long time, and yes, I am very old. So, after all of these years, you would think that I would know my way around campus, which I do. Understand more about honor and integrity from our honor code, which I do. Know both verses of the Cougar Fight Song, which I do, and know and enjoy BYU's history and culture, which I do. Yet there are certain things that I know about BYU that I earnestly hope that I will never, ever forget. President Ezra Taft Benson once said, quote, It is our privilege to store our memories with good and great thoughts and bring them out on the stage of our minds at will. End of quote. 
Sadly, remembering even the good and great thoughts can be difficult. Now, I'm confident that you, of all people, understand this well. After all, you have been taking quizzes and midterms lately and probably know that sick feeling where your head is like a balloon with a very small hole in it. And all of your preparation at the library is leaking out at an alarming rate as you make your way to the testing center. Oh, sure, you try and pump your head up quickly by reading through that stack of note cards that you have prepared as you walk. But you know deep down that all the good stuff is leaking out just as fast as you are putting it in. Now, there is great power in knowledge, but it seems that there is even greater power in remembering. President Spencer W. Kimball once asked, quote, When you look in the dictionary for the most important word, do you know what it is? He then answered, it could be remember, end of quote. With everything that you have tucked away, there are some things that you should never forget, like wisdom. More than knowledge and facts, wisdom deals with applied knowledge, coupled with experience and good sense. It was Alma who admonished his son Helaman, remember, my son, to learn wisdom in thy youth. No wonder President Kimball said, quote, Our greatest need is to remember and emphasize that remember is the word, remember is the program, end of quote. So it is not unusual for people to use strategies or objects to help them remember things that are important. Everyone knows about tying a string around one's finger, but I have never actually met anyone who has used this technique. Others use rhyming patterns, flashcards, repetition, or other devices to create, categorize, or even trigger a memory. And some people even save mementos. More than just a keepsake or a souvenir, a memento is an object with the sole purpose of helping one to remember. In fact, the word memento is from the Latin, which literally translated means remember, with an exclamation point at the end, no less. Because of this, I would like to share with you four BYU mementos that continue to help me in my quest to stand up straight, smile, and remember who I am. Now, I realize that some of you may be thinking, what is the value of this little show and tell at our devotional today? But please consider Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's counsel as my response to that question. Quote, we who have already walked that portion of life's path that you are now on try to call back to you something of what we have learned. We shout encouragement. We try to warn of the pitfalls or perils along the way. Where possible, we try to walk with you and keep you close to our side. End of quote. So let's take a walk together. One treasured memory from my BYU past is this exam. In truth, of all of the hundreds of papers, quizzes, and exams from my undergraduate degree, this is the only academic memento that I saved from my entire undergraduate experience. This is a Chemistry 105 exam. My trophy. I vividly remember watching the professor hand back a big stack of exams to the person on the very front row and say, find your exam and pass the pile along. This was long before FERPA laws protecting privacy, so public humiliation or adoration, depending on how you performed, was always a looming possibility. 
When the stack came to me, I hastily retrieved my exam and hurried out of class. As I was walking out of the building, I glanced at the exam and I saw the number 76 scrawled across the top in red pen. 76? I questioned, 76? I quickly stuffed the exam back into my backpack and I felt as if someone had punched me in the stomach. My mind raced and I started thinking that I obviously wasn't smart enough to be at BYU for surely everyone else in the Chem 105 class scored much higher than I did. I envisioned in my mind my fellow classmates celebrating together at the Cougar Eat toasting their success with chocolate milk. The number 76 kept flashing over and over in my mind as I walked to my apartment by going down the stairs south of campus to the botanical pond. Nearing the bottom of the stairs, I pulled this dreaded exam from my backpack, hoping that somehow I read my score incorrectly. But sure enough, that red 76 was still there. But then I noticed something that I hadn't seen before. My heart raced when I saw a little minus sign. You see, I didn't get a 76 on this exam. I missed 76. <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, right here in the corner is the number 24. Surely this is the lowest score in BYU history given to someone who actually tried really hard to do well. I was so stunned that my first impulse was to jump into the botanical palm, swim to the bottom, and hide from the entire world. Little did I know that the botanical pond was less than three feet deep. So that plan would have also received a score of 24 as it too would have been doomed to failure. Now, you may ask why in the world would you save this particular exam as your only memento of your BYU undergraduate academic experience? It's because this experience impacted and shaped me in significant ways, ways that I hope to never forget. Now, I am not proud of failing or failing with such certainty, but what happened next, however, is something that I hope I will always remember. Somehow I resisted the urge to pack all of my belongings into my car and drive home and leave BYU and all of this humiliation in the rearview mirror. About this time is when I came across a quote that was attributed to Winston Churchill that read, quote, Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is courage, the courage to continue, that counts. End of quote. My mother used to tell her children that we were of pioneer stock. I wasn't sure if I really knew what that meant when I was younger, but I did know the stories about the crossing of the plains. They were usually filled with unbearable challenges, setbacks, and seemingly impossible odds. And at the end of the day, they circled their wagons, built a roaring fire, sang and danced, or at least that's the way that I remembered the stories. And what was their theme song? Come, come, ye saints. I always thought that this was a strange song for those who were hungry, fatigued, and at the brink of devastation. One verse, for example, reads, And should we die before our journey's through? Happy day! All is well. All is well? 
Anybody could see from these stories that all was not well. And just who were these people anyway that would sing such a song as a motivating cry? Well, apparently they were my people. And now years later, they still help me to remember just who I am and what it means to be of pioneer stock. For example, I was sitting on the stand in a chapel in Europe one time singing, Come, Come Ye Saints. A leader leaned over and whispered to me, You know, the Czech translation of this song is quite different from the English version. Really? I countered. He said, It doesn't really read all is well, all is well. I looked at him somewhat surprised. The real translation, he said, is not so bad, not so bad. <laughs> I couldn't help but quietly chuckle on the stand. And then I thought of all the pioneers that might not have always described their own circumstances as being all is well. But I could see how with their expanded vision and tremendous dedication that they could say, this is not so bad, not so bad. And then, with a deep breath, they took yet another step and continued to forge on. Oh, to be of pioneer stock. Now, regardless of your heritage, we can all be pioneers as I learned from one of my favorite primary songs. You don't have to push a handcart, leave your family dear, or walk a thousand miles or more to be a pioneer. You do have to have great courage, faith to conquer fear, and work with might for a cause that's right to be a pioneer. Oh, not so bad. Not so bad. So I occasionally look at this exam and I remember that failure is not fatal and that it's the courage to continue that counts. I remember that every storm will eventually break if you just hold on long enough. I remember that learning is a process and not an event, and that I could do difficult things even when it takes more time than I have and additional strength and effort. Most importantly, I am reminded that life is not determined by a singular performance, and there are times when we need, as my wife so eloquently taught our children, to remember who we are and to stand up straight. No slouching, no shrinking, and no wilting. Just stand up straight, smile, and remind ourselves that it's not so bad, and then move on. My next memento came from my graduate studies at BYU several years later. Upon receiving my master's degree, we held a family celebration. As I was running out of our home to the party with my new degree in hand, I had an epiphany. Without thinking, I went to the workbench and I cut my degree into two. I drove to the party and I handed my wife this half of my degree. She looked somewhat stunned and asked, what's this? Well, it's my master's degree, I said. You sawed your master's degree in half, she asked incredulously. <laughs> By the look at her face and the sound of her voice, it was only then that I realized that this may not have been one of my better ideas. <laughs> I explained that even though this degree had my name on it, that it was just as much hers as it was mine that she worked just as hard as I did and deserved at least, 
at least half of the credit. But you cut it in half, she said again. Now, why do you think I would keep a half a degree on my shelf? Because I always want to remember that everything worthwhile comes with the help of others. You see, life is a collaborative endeavor and success, genuine success, is always attributable to a lot more people than just you. So will you please ask for help? Will you look for support? Seek for those who cheer you on and support you, that will celebrate with you, and even those who will push you to be more than you are at this very moment. And will you please be that person for others? Now, every fall, I read the BYU foundational documents, a compilation of talks about BYU, who we are, or at least who we must become. I do this every fall so I will never forget that at the core of this university are revelations, dreams, and visions. Now there's one particular story from this memento that I would like to highlight. In 1915, BYU was in dire financial difficulties and was preparing to sell the very land where our campus now stands. The commencement speaker, a student by the name of Alfred Kelly, was given an assignment to promote selling the property in his speech. But he was troubled by the idea, and early one morning he walked to the land that was to be sold and he prayed. And then it happened. He saw what he called a strange vision with, quote, thousands of young people who approached me with their arms laden with books. Kelly then continued, I turned around to find an area behind me illuminated as well. In that light, I saw hundreds of buildings, large and beautiful temples of learning. Those young people passed by me and entered in. Then, with cheerfulness and confidence, they turned towards the east and lifted their eyes heavenward, where, again becoming part of the sunlight, they gradually disappeared from my view. End of quote. He decided to share this experience in his commencement speech instead of promoting the idea of selling the land. After sharing the experience in his comments, he sat down and everyone present was silent. I've always loved the way that Jeffrey R. Holland told what happened next. He said, quote, Longtime BYU benefactor Jesse Knight jumped to his feet and shouted, We won't sell an acre. We won't sell a single lot. And then he turned to President George Brimhall and pledged several thousand dollars to the future of the university. End of quote. But I believe that Alfred Kelly's vision was much more than just saving the campus. With this in mind, consider Alfred Kelly's vision once again. More than just buildings on a campus, he saw future BYU students. I believe that it is very likely that Alfred Kelly may have seen you. I love this imagery. What a beautiful setting we learn and discover. Finally, one last memento from my BYU experience. Every computer that I have owned for the past 29 years has had the same screensaver. It is a scrawling custom message that reads, you got to believe. This memento helps me recall something I hope to always remember. At the beginning of my senior year here at BYU, I began worrying whether I was making the right decision about my future. I was taking entrance exams for graduate programs and even submitting applications. 
but nothing felt right. To find some guidance, I interviewed doctors, lawyers, businessmen, and businesswomen, and pretty much everybody that had a pulse and a job. But nothing clicked. Lisa and I started fasting and praying for direction, but nothing happened. So we kept on fasting and praying. One day in the fall, Lisa asked me if there was anyone who could possibly help me that I hadn't already talked with. Without a moment's hesitation, I said, yes, if I could only talk to the president of BYU, who was then Jeffrey R. Holland, that would clear everything up. So Lisa, who possesses more passion, compassion, and faith than Joan of Arc, Mother Teresa, and Esther of the Old Testament combined, said, then you should go talk to him. Are you crazy, I thought? And what would I say? Um, excuse me, President. I am one of the 30,000 plus students here at BYU. Oh, please. So instead, I muddled my way through the next seven months or so trying to figure all of this out. And I couldn't seem to quite get my bearings. I felt as if I was in a fog. And I felt as if everyone else was receiving revelation, direction, and filled with heavenly confidence. The irony was that while I knew God would answer the prayers of anyone who asked with sincere intent, I began wavering in knowing that he would answer my prayers. And now, when it seemed like it mattered the very most, I felt a little alone, abandoned, and even hopeless at times. So with just a Several weeks prior to my graduation, I attended my senior capstone class in the basement of the Jesse Knight building. As I prepared to leave the building after class, I noticed there was a crowd that was gathering at the west doors. So I worked my way to the front of the doors and discovered the reason no one was leaving was because it was raining. It was a complete downpour. Having taught at the MTC earlier that day, I was dressed in a suit, and I can almost hear myself saying, typical, as I looked outside at the rainstorm, knowing that I would have to walk home in it. I put a Daily Universe newspaper over my head, and I started running through the parking lot. The newspaper turned to a pulpy mush, and I was soaked almost immediately. So I walked very slowly. I might as well catch pneumonia and be sent to the hospital, I thought. Make the most of the experience. <laughs> I was truly in a blue mood and felt very down. As I walked past the Brimhall building, I heard someone yell out, you need this more than I do. And I looked across the street and there was President Holland holding up an umbrella. I offered an exchange of my backpack for his umbrella, and he responded by opening the rear passenger door of his car and offering me a ride home. I ran across the street, got in, and immediately created a puddle of water on their back seat. Sister Holland, who was already in the car, greeted me as President Holland got into the driver's seat. Where can I take you? President Holland asked as he looked at me through the rear view mirror. My wife and I were managing apartments south of campus at the time, and I 
kind of hesitated in telling him where I lived because I didn't think he would be very impressed. But with the president of the university looking at me in the eye, albeit through the rearview mirror, I confessed the name of the complex. And President and Sister Holland chuckled. And President Holland said, Pat and I managed those apartments when we were undergraduates at BYU. I was stunned and speechless. My tiny brain couldn't comprehend that President Jeffrey R. Holland actually lived in the same apartment that I was living in. Impossible. You see, I had long admired President Holland and had placed him and Sister Holland in the born with a life category. I imagined that his life was charmed from the very beginning. Perfect high school athlete, perfect missionary, perfect wife, perfect president, just perfect. So to think that I actually lived in the same apartment, incomprehensible. Are you married? They asked. Yes, I answered with my head still spinning. Do you have children? We have a son, I said. Our first son was born while we lived and managed those apartments, they explained. Really? I managed to blurt out, that's the best I could do. Really? We started driving south on Campus Drive past the Mazer building. As I sat in this car, I suddenly realized that seven months previous I told my wife that if I could only talk to President Holland, then I was confident I could receive helpful direction. And here I was sitting in a car with him. I mustered my courage and I asked, Did you ever worry about your future? Oh yes, he replied. I was actually stunned. And all I could say was, Really? (laughs) After all, I thought this was a man who had never had a worry in his entire life. I asked several other questions and found my response to every answer to be, really? I finally asked, President Holland, have you ever been so discouraged that you didn't know if things would ever work out? Did you ever worry that you might not make it after all? He looked at me through the rearview mirror and answered again to my surprise. Yes, I did. True to the pattern of our conversation thus far, I managed an incredulous, really? I recall Sister Holland saying, yes, Matt, really. We drove to my complex and I didn't give him any directions. And I moved toward the car door to get out. But President Holland put the car in park and he and Sister Holland turned in their seats to face me. And we talked. At one point in our conversation, he said, Matt, part of your problem is is that you don't believe. I admit I felt a little badly as if my testimony was considered to be subpar. Oh, he said, I'm not talking about your testimony. You just believe that God will work his mighty miracles for everyone but you. And his assessment was actually right. And then he said with his typical fervor, You gotta believe, Matt. You gotta believe. 
He then offered some more sound counsel, heaps of encouragement, and I got out of the car. I stood and waved until they were out of sight. Upon entering our apartment, I shared this experience with my wife, and we wept together, and we wrote the experience down so we would always remember. So why the screensaver? I will always be grateful for President and Sister Holland. I want to make sure that I never forget that God is aware of each of us. I want to remember every day, or perhaps every three minutes when the screensaver comes back on, that every day that BYU is a place where students can turn to the mountains, look heavenward, and be filled with light. This is who we are, and I want to remember every day that no matter what happens, you've got to believe. Twelve years after my ride home in the rainstorm, Elder Holland, in a general conference address, reflected on a personal experience when he was discouraged and unsure about his own future. He offered himself this advice, which brought back memories and renewed my own resolve. Elder Holland said, quote, Don't give up, boy. Don't you quit. You keep walking. You keep trying. There is help and happiness ahead. A lot of it. Thirty years of it now and still counting. You keep your chin up. It will be all right in the end. Trust God and believe in good things to come. End of quote. You've got to believe. I especially hope that you will stand up straight and smile and remember who you are. So reverence, respect, responsibility, and yes, resolve. Be a light. Don't you ever forget it. In the name of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was learning from and remembering the past with thoughts from David J. Whitaker and Matthew O. Richardson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.